Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week we have Gail Manahan, and she's become a respected go-to counselor for families, teens, and young adults who are seeking to step into the best versions of themselves. Gail holds a graduate degree in psychology and community counseling and has been an acclaimed licensed mental health counselor in Washington for the last several decades. Throughout this time, Gail has specialized heavily in family therapy and teen behavior and owned a private counseling practice for 30-plus years. She's also utilized her experiences and thousands of hours of field study to develop her book, Is Raising Your Teen a Piece of Cake? A deep diving literature that walks parents through the most frequent and challenging issues they will face when raising teens. Gail now lives in Arizona, where your host lives, and is a life and relationship guide for women and teaches a Tibetan Buddhist class for our Western lifestyle. So much to unpack there. Can't wait. Gail, how are you doing? (laughs) Great. That sounded so impressive. I'd like to meet that woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a good resume, and uh, I definitely was excited to interview you because we have a lot of counselors and people in that sort of area, and we also, you know, have people who venture into Buddhism and whatnot, but not someone who does both. And as a proud parent of two non-teenagers, I am, uh, you know, a little tentative about the experience that's coming my way. So I'd love to ask questions about all that as well. Um, Before we get into all that, as you know, we like to ask our guests, um, how old are you? Where did you grow up? And what generation, if any, do you think you're a member of? Well, I will tell you that my age um, comes from when I graduated from high school, and you can figure that out. So that was... (laughs) Um, 1973, so I was a child of the 60s and 70s, so I am a baby boomer, and I am a grandparent of four amazing grandkids, and I have four children, and I am married, and that's kind of my stats. I grew up in Colorado, moved to Washington in eighth grade. Um, I've lived in North Carolina, South Carolina, California, and about I don't know, eight places in the state of Washington. So I have moved around a lot. Cool. Well, I love the Pacific Northwest. I used to live in Portland. Absolutely love it. So the first question I'd love to ask you, and it's not a joke, but it's going to sound like one, is was raising your four teenagers a piece of cake? Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing, and we have a premium package, and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and sign up today. <laughs> no, it was not a piece of cake. There was one of them that was a piece of cake, and that was the last one, our youngest. Um, She was one of those dream children that made great choices, was quite a homebody, um, didn't worry a lot about her. Um, But I would say the other three, you know, the normal worries about driving, getting involved with alcohol, drugs, um, you know, who they were dating, all of that kind of thing. Though the last two, because I had Uh, My first child at 19 and my second one at 21. And then I was married 17 years in that marriage, divorced, married again. And then 15 years later, I had another child. So there's, um, so I've been raising kids most of my life. And then my husband had a child that was um, just a little one when we got together. So all in all, we have a blended family. But those first two kids, the ones that were born when I was 19 and 21, um, back like in 74 and 77, there was no internet or phone 
or I mean, they had phones, obviously, but no cell phones. So it's a different. It's even hard to remember what it was like to raise kids without them having access to the internet. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Is it harder or easier when they have access to the internet, in your opinion? I think it's harder now because we can't regulate the world that our kids are on when they're on their phones. And I think parents are protective generally and kind of want to know what's happening. And I don't think we can know anymore. I think it's they they outsmart us too. on different apps that they use that we don't know they're using. I think it's scarier with with um, their access to Yeah, it's going to be hard to clamp down control, even if you want to, because they have, like, possession of other people's things. But I would also juxtapose that with back when there was pay phones, I just had these, like, check-in times. So I could go <laughs> to Berkeley, score some weed, get high with my friends, <laughs> and then call my parents back two hours later. I know. But how did how did we know where the parties were? Like how did without Google Maps and somebody texting us, how how did we literally know how to show up at a party? And it's strange because I mean I do I, I love that you know famous saying there by the grace of God go I because my friends and I were not stupidly reckless but we were stupid and reckless. Yeah. Like, yeah. So what is uh because it's it's in your bio and I'm actually curious what is the most frequent not the most challenging but what's the most frequent issue that comes up when you're counseling people with teenagers? Most of the time when somebody contacts me um worried about their teenager it has a lot to do with the teenager resisting going to school and not wanting to be in school any longer, not doing well in school. And so that's when parents, I think the school district might start to contact them, and then they contact a professional. So parents usually bring teenagers in when they don't perform up to how they should be, obviously, going to classes, um, you know, or another good one is when they are involved in a relationship that the parent is very worried about who they're hanging out with. Um, so, you know, relationships bring them in, um, you know, poor performance at school. Um, a lot of times it starts there. Now, when a teenager wants to see a counselor and I'm alone with the teenager, they have a lot of different issues that they're worried about than what their parents are worried about. So it's like the parents come in with a concern but the kids have different concerns. And typically they share with me much more than their parents even are aware of is going on. You talk to your friends, you read books, you get on the internet, and then finally you think, I need to go talk to someone. And that takes a lot of vulnerability on the part of a parent to say, help me figure this out. Yeah, that's I've thought about this a lot. Um, and actually it's weird because even like with my parents, my parents were great parents, but um, I was pretty overweight by the time I graduated high school. And I've asked them like, you know, in the years since, cause I've lost weight and, you know, I've worked with those demons and all that, uh, what it was like. And, you know, they said it was like, it was awkward. We didn't want to embarrass you, but we also wanted to help you. And we didn't know how, and your older brother had already dealt with the same issues and we felt like we failed with them, with him. So, uh, what is like the line of like privacy versus like, no matter what come hell or high water, we're fixing this quote unquote problem you have. Like what, what do you suggest to parents specifically? You know, you've got to be vigilant about the really important things. Like, are you going to be a household that does not allow drug or alcohol behavior in your home? Um, you can talk to your children about it. 
And if you find out that they're drinking and driving, you can take away their car, you can take away their phones, you can give them restrictions. Um, but you are allowed to tell your child what your expectations are when they live in your home. Um, and so setting boundaries, being really clear about expected behavior is important. And But sometimes parents get really upset because they're not cleaning their rooms, they're leaving their dishes out. And I, I'm you know, we'll say to them, don't sweat the small things. Just don't sweat the small things. You know, it's it's the drinking, uh, use of marijuana. Marijuana typically starts out as um, parents are a little bit tolerant about drinking and, and marijuana. But my experience with teens that are using and smoking weed at an early age is they do often go on to the bigger drugs and get into some big trouble with it. Um, so I will say, you know, be vigilant about that. Their brains are growing. They're developing socially. You don't need to to sit back and do nothing when you find out your child is using. Have them see a drug and alcohol counselor. Have them get educated on chemical dependency. You may not be able to stop that behavior, but you can be firm about your concern about it. Um, where I've had a lot of parents that just say, chalk it up to, oh, it's just normal, you know, teens experiment. And I think, mm, you need to be real careful here. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my parents graduated high school in probably 65, 66. I'm off by a year maybe. Um, but the point is they grew up in a similar culture to the one you grew up in. It was probably a slightly tamer, but, uh, the point is they went on to definitely, you know, partake in the hippie activities of the late 60s and early 70s. And so growing up, they were very, very honest about that, which kind of like made me think. So they, they made a really clear line in the sand. They just said like marijuana and alcohol have harmful effects and absolutely are harmful, but cocaine and heroin and these other things will kill you. And I remember like the line between I'm going to die from this when I'm young versus I might have a problem was was very clear to me as a teenager but actually, to relate it to this podcast, because I do want to shift into the other things you do, um, is the fear of death among teenagers a good or a bad thing? And are we teaching that into or out of our children, in your opinion? They Teenagers are typically um, not that afraid of death, because I think they just don't think it can happen to them personally. You know, I think we all, when we were teens, thought we were fearless in so many ways. Um so I don't think warning them about what could harm them, it, it does, actually I've been with a lot of teens that are definitely scared of drugs because they have been warned and they are, they're high, they're highly anxious people. They're already usually overperformers in school, um, you know, the, just the very motivated kids that want to make good choices, but other kids are like, yeah, my parents tell me about this, but my friends use all the time and it's fun. So what's the big deal? The death that teenagers, when death gets real to teenagers is when they've lost a parent, um, you know, an untimely death, a sibling, a parent, even when they lose their grandparents they or a pet, um, that's when it breaks their bubble that life, you know, actually can result in death. Um and so they grieve like, I think they grieve like anybody. Um, some of them just get distracted and get busy and act like nothing happened. Others will withdraw um, from school or be really sad and can't function very well. 
but they don't really think about death until they experience death in my mind. And, and so to what extent do you think Western culture, or maybe even more specifically American culture, is or is not teaching death to, to younger people, just in your professional and life experience? Yeah, I don't think we talk about it much. And I think sometimes we don't have them go to, to memorial services or celebrations of life because we don't want them to be upset. And the biggest thing that parents can do with their children, I think, in my experience, is teach them how to cope not protect them from things that they need to cope with, but teach them how to cope. Um, because some kids are so sheltered by parents wanting their children to um, make sure they have, like, say your, your child forgets their lunch, then the, the parent runs and takes the lunch to the school. And actually let them learn how to cope without lunch. Let them develop that coping skill. Because when life gives them all sorts of challenges, they will develop great coping skills. And if you protect them from stress or anxiety, they won't develop it. And I guess there was a book that's called Raising Highly Capable Children in a Self-Indulgent World. Great book. Because it teaches you it's okay to let your kids be sad if they didn't get picked for a sports team. Um, you know, it's it's okay. Let them learn how to cope early. When I did my teen seminars, which I did a decade of teen seminars, I had a um, contract with the state of Washington to have foster care teens attend my seminars and also teens from really um, wonderful upbringings and lifestyles attended my seminars. The teens that had lived in 30 different homes, had suffered from abuse, um, that came out of foster care were so much better equipped to cope with life than the ones that were raised in affluence. And so the ones that were raised in affluence were like, oh my God, you know, my parents won't even give me my eight, their ATM card so I could go get gas the other day. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> or my teachers suck. The foster care kids would never have complained about that. Many of them wanted to have good grades, didn't want anything to do with drugs or alcohol. So they were teaching me that what they had to cope with made them stronger. And they saw life differently than kids who were handed everything. And I was one of those parents that wanted to hand my kids everything. I'm one of those parents that don't want my kids to have to cope. But these kids taught me that we have got to let our children experience disappointment and frustration. We have to teach them how to cope. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. That's, that's so cool and so powerful. My last question about teenagers, and then we're going to focus on you. Um, and I hope that's okay. Is just, it actually circles back to when I was mentioning that I had a weight problem when I was a teenager. And now when I go back, cause I volunteered at a lot of schools and I used to teach, I see more kids who look like I did than not now. And that's like very frightening to me. I mean, it, uh, there was one school I went to and I swear it was like every other kid was probably the technical definition of obese, if not just overweight. Do you think that's one of the bigger challenges parents are going to start facing more and more now? Or is that like small potatoes compared to all the other things we already discussed? I think that's just a great point. And in my book that I wrote, I have chapters that address the different um, stressors that are most common with teens and counseling and teens in life. One of them is called, I think it's called Cake with Extra Layers, which is what do you do with a child who is dealing with obesity issues? Because 
the way that kids are eating these days, yes, they're getting bigger. And But what I love about the culture now is this whole business of not fat shaming. This is a big deal. And, you know, there's more and more kids that are larger that are more confident in what they're wearing. They're more confident in their size. Um, I think there's less, hopefully there's less bullying just because of this cultural shift. And I think that's healthy. Um, But I also love nutrition and I do worry about, you know, the easy convenience of snack foods and how kids don't really get how food impacts their bodies. We just now have a like, don't fat shame culture. And I love that. Like people can be healthy at any size. Exactly. And and it's interesting because mentally healthy at any size, but physically healthy at any size isn't true. So there's this weird thing that like I suffer from and everyone would suffer from, which is how do I tell myself not to be ashamed of my body yet? How do I still recognize the importance of actually eating the right amount. Yeah. I I kind of wonder where we're all headed. And speaking of where we're all headed, it is time to ask you before we get into Tibetan Buddhism, what did you grow up thinking was going to happen when you died? And what do you currently think is going to happen when you die, if they are different? Well, when I was growing up, I was interested in all sorts of different religions. And I wanted to find the right ones. So I read a lot of things on comparative religion to find out. And every religion has something about life after death. Um, but I was raised Christian to where you go to heaven and, you, you know, all of that. Um, a lot of that never made any sense to me. And so I think I was terrified of death when I was younger, that I would lose people that I love. Now that I am older and have lost people that I love, in fact, my son died May 1st this year from a fentanyl overdose. And I know. Um, and so having experienced the loss of a child, having experienced the loss of friends and studying Buddhism, I am at peace with what happens after you die. Of course, we miss people when they die. Of course, we long to be with them. But I believe that we cannot kill our consciousness. I believe that consciousness continues. And I talk to my son every night. I talk to uh, my good friend that I lost. I feel they are accessible. And so I think life continues, not with a body. And I've had too many signs from people that have died that have come into this existence that reassure me that they're okay. Some, you know, amazingly, amazing experiences. Uh, So Buddhism is a very practical, um, with, you know, it's full of practical wisdom, um, things you almost can't argue with. And But when it comes to afterlife, Buddhists often believe in reincarnation. Not all Buddhists have to believe in reincarnation, They, but they do collectively believe that consciousness continues, whether or not you come back. So I think that um, I'm very realistic, like the like death is a part of life and dogs have a lifespan, maybe up to 15 years, maybe longer. We have a lifespan, maybe up to 100 years. I trust nature because nature is so incredibly intelligent and nature kills off all living things eventually. So I just trust we're part of an extreme intelligence, which is nature. And if they think we should die, then I guess that's what we're going to do. Even though it's like, why do we have to? I don't know if you've listened to any of the previous episodes or anything, but my uh, ex-wife took my son quite against my will to a foreign country, did not return with him. And what I'm constantly told by people is, 
at least he didn't die. Yeah. And now I'm talking to someone who understands that side, that the one that I'm, you know, supposed to be grateful for. And I, I am grateful. Let me just make sure I'm not weaving into like a weird conversation. Yeah. But I do find that the same tactics are required for grieving the like temporary or full-time loss of a, of a child. And so I'm, I'm curious, I just felt a lot of guilt. Like I could have helped more. I could have somehow done this differently if I had, you know, really gotten the lawyer to like do the agreement differently. Or if I'd made more money, I could have bribed the state department. So I'm just curious, like, how do you deal with that part? You know, assuming that that's what you felt. Well, here's what I think. First of all, when you when a child dies, it's final and there's no negotiating. When you have a child that is alive that you can't access, to me, that can be even more painful because that child is out there in the world and you're not able to be with your child. So death is, is final. You, you can't negotiate them back into your life. You can, you can grieve, but it's final. You were in a situation that was a you know, great negotiation, either with yourself or like you said, should I have gotten lawyers? You were missing out on a child that was still alive. And that to me would have torn me to complete and total pieces if I were in your same situation. I mean, just devastated me. I, I can't even imagine. And the only, I think, solace one would have is hopefully they were being taken great care of um, with the other parents, because otherwise it would be complete and total torture. Um, and I've been through a divorce, and my husband has. We understand about custody and how painful that entire process is for anybody um, when they go through divorces. The, the, the visitations and the custody, it's, it's painful it's based in fear, you know, like, how is this going to turn out? Yeah. So it's rough. That's a rough, it's just a very rough situation. Don't wish it on anyone. Well, and I, I will say just from even talking to you for like 20 something minutes, I, I assure you, you would have coped and you would have been fine. Um, I just can tell you like there's a resiliency to your voice and your approach to life. But, you know, I also, I appreciate the compassion, but like, you know, as a exchange between two people who are discussing grieving and loss specifically with children. I think what you originally said in your answer, which is that, you know, you just, everything comes and goes is, is very correct to me. And it's just, it's how I look at even like the temporary or full-time loss of my son in this life. You know, so what you talked about coping, I think that really might be like the, not like the only wise thing you said on this podcast, but it might be the only actual advice for all humans is learn how to cope. (laughs) Well, and the thing of it is, and I teach people this, is content in our life is our everyday life. We have the same content, right? I mean, we wake up in the same house. We usually have the same family, the same path, the same job. We have content. But the power is in context. The power is how do we hold, how do we relate to the content? That's our power. And so when I've dealt with people with tragic situations in their life, their their context, the frame that they put on the content, they, they some of them are never victims, ever. They never feel victimized. And they've had tremendous loss because they put a frame on it of either gratitude or, you know, we were the lucky ones. And I have witnessed my counseling clients teaching me that it's not the content. It's not the situation. It's how you hold it. 
and how you hold it is all of us can change how we hold a situation. All of us have the power to change the context, and but we can't change the content because that's the nuts and bolts. So our power, our personal power lies in the, in the frame. And sometimes it takes days to put a new frame on the situation, you know, to find that frame that lifts you out of that feeling of being a victim, that feeling of powerlessness. Um, so does that mean we just snap our fingers and we figure it out? But that's it. But there are people that strive constantly to not be victims of their circumstances. And that's where the power is, right? Yes. And that's, that's very powerful to hear it that way. If I can, I'd like to switch gears to the final topic I had planned with you. You said in your bio that you've uh, now have written a relationship guide for women and you're teaching that as well. And, and so my question, it's going to sound weird, but it's not that I'm offended as a man, but I'm curious, do you think you could also just make a relationship guide for men and you're just particularly focusing on women? Or do you think the two sides when someone chooses that gender, and I'm saying this to be all inclusive to everyone listening. So once you've selected your gender, do you think that it really is different between the two genders? Yes. <laughs> so in my life, working with couples, men, um, I'm comfortable with all sexes, and I'm comfortable with all gender identity. I've, I've been there, done it all, been with people, love it, love all humans. Why I love working with women is typically they seek out counseling more so than men. Most of the men I've dealt with are usually coming in because either their wives or girlfriends made them, or they um, were in such a terrible situation they finally came in. It's kind of like sometimes men don't like to go to the doctor. Um, because it's a, it's like you're being vulnerable, but women often seek, they read the, you know, the self-help books, they, you know, follow the, the, the gurus. They are really curious about self-growth in general. And I find that men are, they're, it's not that they're more simple to deal with, but they don't demand as much often out of life. Now I'm just talking in generalities. They're, they're, they're happy when their wives are happy. They're happy when their kids are happy. They, they feel they're, they don't need to discuss something constantly. Um, and I love men and I love the work with men that I've done. And I also really love that they come into a counseling office where they are vulnerable sitting there with a, a counselor. I, I think it takes tremendous courage. When I do groups, I like to just keep them with women because I think women feel safer in a group of all women. Sometimes when I've mixed the groups, um, I think women get a little bit uh, shy. They get a little shyer about speaking their minds. So I've kind of just evolved into women's groups. Um, but I love teaching couples. I've taught lots of classes on um, uh, relationship skills, you know, increasing emotional intelligence in relationships. Um, but I'm coming towards kind of the end of my career and I've just chosen women um, as uh, for groups especially so I've got nothing against men I just find that women I think women seek counselors more so than men do typically typically I would a thousand percent agree with that also I don't know if I'm even allowed to bash my own gender or not anymore but I will uh, say that as a male who identifies as male I, I do agree with what you said but it's also interesting because when you said like things are more simple in all the relationships I've ever been in. And that is the one thing that I've noticed that I'm always at some point, not arguing with, but saying to my female partners is 
if you just simplify this perspective, you wouldn't think this was as big of a deal. Yeah. Well, and that's what drives me nuts about my husband is he will simplify my issue, right? Like I'll go like <laughs> have the big gigantic issue over something and he's like, really? And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go talk to a girlfriend. I'll get more <laughs> mileage. I'll get more mileage out of this with a girlfriend any day. Oh, the number of times I've told my wife, you need to call a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's We are different and we are similar, but uh, there, you know, someone's full of estrogen and someone's full of testosterone and they are d- literally different beings. So, um, and I have, you know, I, I, I love the gay lesbian population. I, my best friends are gay and I, I love, when I, when, when I work with gay couples, it's fun because they're, they do show up. One will show up a little more, you know, traditionally feminine than the other. Um, but I, everybody's issues are the exact same. Like somebody wants the fan off in the bedroom. Somebody wants the fan on in the bedroom. I, it's just like, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same stuff. It's very difficult to live with somebody 24 by seven, anyone. Right. As a fellow divorcee who's very, very, very happily remarried, but also still in a marriage and dealing with it, I could not agree more. Gail, you're so fun to talk to. I'm sad that you're going to work towards retirement. I love to give my guests a chance to just kind of have the floor at the end of the show. So is there anything you want to add real quick before we go? I think the biggest thing I want to say, because this is what my book is about, and this is a message to parents. Most parents blame themselves for how the choices that their kids are making. Most parents say, what did we do wrong? What could we have done better? What will people think of us? And in my experience of working with parents and teenagers is it's not all about you, parents, and you need to let that go. You are not the only influencer in your kids' lives. There are genetics. There are life experiences. There are friendships. There's school. They're a completely different being, and you only have a little bit of influence on them on, and how they turn out. So give yourself a break. Because some of the worst parenting I've ever seen has turned out some of the best kids I've ever seen. And some of the best parenting I've seen has turned out the worst kids. So really, not worst in, in the choices that they make. It's a crapshoot. And so my book says to parents, stop blaming yourselves. You did the best that you can. Other, there's other impacts out there. Look at our own childhoods. You know, we didn't always turn out exactly like our parents wanted us to. We we did a lot of made a lot of choices they didn't want us to make. So I want parents to stop blaming themselves. I want them to give themselves a break. Um, love the kids, do the best that you can, and stop thinking that you are their you know major influence. You are a part of it, but you are not all of it. Oh, I love it. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for all the wisdom and advice that you had. And thank you for existing on Earth and being awesome because we love meeting people like you. And the more I do the show, the more I'm actually thinking, you know, there's a lot less complaining, whining, upset people than the media is making me think. So this project has been wonderful for that purpose. Well, I've enjoyed your podcast very much. I've been listening to your podcast and I've enjoyed your guests very much and your interview style. So thank you. 
thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And to those of you listening at home, we appreciate you and we love your uh, support. So if you want to support the show, the best way to do it is to sign up at MikeyOp.com. Hit the big subscribe button. It's free. And then if you want to go the extra mile, I would absolutely love it if you'd sign up for a premium package. It's the best way to support all the projects we're doing. But in the meantime, thank you for checking into Coffin Talk. Thank you again to Gail Manahan, who will have the full notes and a way to find her and, of course, her book. This is Mike Oppenheim. You have been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon. Walking alone when I hear